Greetings and warm welcome to the Intersection and ONA podcast. I'm Reverend Derek Terry. I'm the program director for the Opening uh, Affirming Coalition, and I'm the host of the podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us. I am thrilled that you are here with us today for this very special episode. Later, I'm going to be joined by a dear friend, a UCC minister, a chaplain, and a very passionate trans activist, um, Darren Johnson. In this episode, Darren graciously shares her personal story and faith journey with us. She sheds light on her experiences, but she also delves into the critical discussion surrounding the current wave of anti-LGBTQ legislation that is sweeping across the country. She is located in Tennessee, and Tennessee is the home of the first uh, anti-drag bill and they really seem to be on the cusp of some of the legislation that we see trickling throughout the country that is anti-trans, anti-LGBTQ, anti-diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. And so Darren is on the ground and doing the work in Tennessee. And so she'll be joining us just to inform and inspire us to resist Uh, some of the hate and to offer us ideas for how we can support um, individuals and uh, and institutions that are doing the work uh, during this part of our history. Before we dive into that enlightening conversation, I have just a couple of quick church announcements that I want to share. Firstly, mark your calendars that on February 27th, we kick off our spring and summer webinar series with ONA 101 led by yours truly. This invaluable resource is designed to guide churches in starting their open and affirming journey and invigorate churches that are in the midst of their commitment, uh, thinking of how they can reignite their ONA covenant if they're already an ONA church. So we're excited about that. Uh, We also have five more webinars lined up exploring such topics such as uh, creating safe spaces, examining the LGBTQ plus belonging through a biblical lens, and deep dives into gender spectrums and diverse family constellations like polyamory or ethical non-monogamy. Just trying to understand and unpack some of that and understand uh, what we may face in our churches. Prices start at $30 per session for an individual and 50 for a small church, but don't miss out on our special offer until February 27th, where you can access all six webinars for the price of four. So visit our website, openandaffirming.org backslash events, E-V-E-N-T-S, to register for those. Also, we are celebrating Women's History Month, and in doing so, we are spotlighting outstanding queer women who make a difference and create positive change in our world. So feel free to nominate someone who, one, identifies as a woman, two, identifies on this queer spectrum, and three, is at least 12 years old. Um, Identify them and nominate them by just emailing our executive director, Dr. Katrina, at Katrina, K-A-T-R-I-N-A, at openandaffirming.org. Let them know about your outstanding woman you have until February the 29th, and they could be selected to be spotlighted on our 
on an interview with our director on our social. So please, please, please take advantage of that. Also, stay tuned and stay connected with what we're doing uh, by following us on Facebook at UCC.Coalition and Instagram at UCC.Coalition to stay informed and up to date on our events and initiatives. Also, one of the best ways you can support us is by liking, sharing, and commenting on our Facebook and Instagram. Anytime you see something that you think may be of interest, please like, share, comment. It helps with the algorithm and helps us to get the word out. All right, lastly, one final thing before we get into this interview. We are a separate 501c3 nonprofit. We rely entirely on the generosity of our community to do the work that we do. We do not receive any direct funds from the United Church of Christ directly. We must raise everything through grants and individual contributions. So your gifts enable us to guide nearly 100 churches annually through the ONA process. Your gifts help to support our work to support queer, queer clergy and other LGBTQ or LGBTQ affirming individuals who face discrimination. We provide crucial education opportunities needed to do this work. So please, please, please open your hearts. Visit openandaffirming.org to make a donation. And if possible, consider becoming a sustaining member with a monthly gift. Your support helps to ensure the strength and consistency of our faith movement. With that being said, let's dive into our insightful interview with Chaplain Duran Johnson. Here we go. All right, let's go. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Intersection and ONA podcast. This is Reverend Derek Terry, Program Director for the Open and Affirming Coalition. And I am here with, uh, with a friend, and I would like for you to introduce yourself to us at this time. <laughs> sure. Well, uh, the good Reverend Derek uh, was so kind to uh, invite me on this evening. I'm so glad to be here. My name is Darren Johnson, if I'm doing it official style, right? I am Chaplain Darren Johnson. How do you know it's me? Well, I'm the one with the H in the middle of Darren. <laughs> That's the easy way uh, to spot that out. And uh, I am a licensed minister and chaplain in the Southeast Conference of the United Church of Christ. My primary work is as a bereavement coordinator uh, with a hospice that serves eight counties here in Middle Tennessee. Uh, and I also do a lot of work with uh, the Tennessee Equality Project, uh, community outreach, education, and then uh, a lot down in the legislature itself when it's in session, which it is right now. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Well, thank you so much for for joining us and thank you for taking time out of your schedule. looks like you're probably at work right now. <laughs> Um, yeah. so. that, that's okay. This, the, I, I'll say, I'll say this, uh, sometimes, you know, where you might get the quietest moment and the least interruptions from family and very tall children. Right. So <laughs> this, this might be the safest place, uh, to get a, get a good moment with you. That is perfect. But so thank you. Thank you. Thank you again. Go ahead and tell us just a little bit about yourself, like where you're from, how you found your way into, ministry and just your faith journey, anything that you want us to, to learn about yourself? Sure. Uh, that's a, 
That's a great question. Uh, obviously, it's a big question too, but I could I could answer it in a fairly small way, which is to say, you know, my parents met at Yale Divinity School in the early 60s. So I don't know if I had any other choice <laughs> right? <laughs> right? But to be in this life. I could try to do something else. I waited tables 70 hours a week and worked in bike shops and bookstores and did three children's story hours a week and you know did all types of things. But just like in Godfather 3, right? Every time I try to get out, the ministry, it pulls me back in. <laughs> so, so here I am. Uh, my parents actually, after meeting in divinity school, uh, both decided that it wasn't uh, either the right direction for them or not the right direction at that moment. So my dad actually left after a, left that program after a semester, went on to get a master's in English teaching and a PhD, taught literature for about 15 20 years or so, uh, my mom decided immediately that it wasn't the right thing, but she's uh, a very task-oriented person. So once she started her MDiv, she was going to finish her mm -hmm. MDiv. And as soon as she was done, she went on to get a master's in sociology, a PhD in sociology, and then taught for 45 plus years, um, uh, focusing on gerontology and specifically the ethics of aging. Wow. Uh, so a strong part of the sense of the work that I do now in the hospice space, but also just her approach to how we move forward together, how we do tough thinking together, how we move ourselves towards better together comes from the type of work that she did and informed my, my dad's really person-oriented view of the world. He came back uh, to, uh, he came back to Divinity School, went back to Yale in the late 70s, and then was a UCC minister, right? Again, they both met at the Congregational Mothership at Yale, right? So <laughs> uh, came back and then was a UCC minister for about 25 years. And my dad's focus was really on people and their, the importance of their stories the importance of the narrative that they have for themselves and the way they tell that, the way that they embody that in the world. Uh, and I don't know how much justice I do to either of their approach, but it's certainly something that I feel informed by on, on a daily basis and something I certainly carry with me uh, to, to jump ahead uh, in our story a little bit. As a matter of fact, when I had the opportunity uh, to offer invocation and prayer uh, on the floor of the Tennessee General Assembly, being the first trans person to ever speak on the Tennessee House floor. Um, I took my dad's uh, UCC Book of Worship <laughs> and my mom's uh, handbook on ethical issues and aging, uh, which she wrote a couple chapters for. My dad wrote uh, a chapter in as well, and that really was infused with her. And that was my way of being able to carry them with me up in, into that space. So that's uh, their views of how we 
interact with each other and tend to each other, attend to each other is something that I'm, I'm, uh, I, I think about daily. Oh, that's awesome. So you were the first trans person or openly trans person or first trans person to speak on the floor of the Tennessee assembly. Is that correct? That's correct. That's oh, correct. So how was that? What was that experience like? <laughs> it was uh, pretty. It, it was pretty overwhelming in the time that led up to it, and it's been almost as overwhelming in the time after it's happened. Just sort of worrying about did I did I do it well enough? Did I thread the needle of um, speaking to uh, the folks that I was meant, that I was there to address, right? The legislators on the floor, uh, that that was the purpose of that day. And how well did I meet that specific moment? Uh, but at the same time that I wanted to be able to offer something that folks who might otherwise be resistant uh, in a space like that to, to hearing, given the history of that space, how well did I then also find a way to offer a word and offer enough space in whatever I said that allowed the community, that allowed others to also feel present, to also feel like they had a space in that. Um, that, that that's something I continue to be concerned about in, in, the, in the time since, because it's only up for others to judge about how, how much space they felt in what I said. Um, but that's, that certainly has been a concern of mine. The, the funny thing itself is in that moment, there's a kind of mad rush, right? To have it happen. They hadn't given me a lot of timelines or anything. So I had crafted a really solid five minutes, right? Okay, five minutes, that's not too long. They tell me to go shorter. I can fudge a little bit. But when I got up there, they said, well, we really look for something around two to three minutes. That's, you know, that's 240, uh, <laughs> 360 words they were asking me to cut on a moment's notice. I think I got around 200 out in the last three minutes before the hour struck four. Uh, but really, uh, there was such a rush of those type of last minute things to do that once I was up there and they said, okay, and that mic light goes red, you're on. And he turns his, the parliamentarian turns his back and that mic light went on. It was go time. There's not much time to think about that. Um, if I can, just to sort of tie this back to that faith, mm -hmm. faith journey, I'll say that, um, you know, I served on my, started serving on my first church committee, uh, church ed committee, of course, when I was 13, back in 1983. I was a youth delegate uh, to both the Roanoke and St. Louis synods when I was 19 and 21. Uh, is that right? I think that's right. Um, and uh, I remember having the opportunity to meet Ben Chavis, uh, who was uh, still head of our racial justice coalition at the time. Uh, and uh, I had spoken from the floor about the inequities of, of standardized testing uh, and who that allowed folks to get in and uh, 
Um, uh, Mr. Chavis came up to me, Reverend Chavis came up to me after that and said, I appreciate, appreciate what you said out there. And it's a small moment, it's just a passing moment, but you know, that type of energy and that type of encouragement is certainly something that has stuck with me all these years. Uh, and if we, my dad was a minister in Durham, North Carolina during the 80s when uh, Ben Chavis was really bringing the notion of environmental racism to all of our intention right there in North Carolina. So having models like that of how to speak a pastoral word, how to speak a prophetic word, uh, have been with me throughout the arc, the arc of my life um, lead, leading up to this, this point and have remained really powerful uh, models and mentors for me. That's awesome. How had how did the church your your relationship with your your faith journey and the church help you through um, your transition? Like when we talk about, I don't know if we if if I announced in the beginning, uh, Reverend Derek here pronouns he him uh, Darren pronoun Darren with an H D A H R O N she her how did in in how, what did what did that look like? How did the church help with that, or or not just the church, but what was your own walk with God like through through that journey? Because so many people use so many religious reasons as uh, to why a, a trans experience shouldn't be possible, but we all know that God's uh, beloved trans children are just as beloved to God as anyone else. So how did you reconcile or how did that faith experience help with that journey? Uh, that's a really thoughtful uh, question and uh, has many layers to it. Um, there were times I think where uh, it was a real mix of concern about what the reaction would be within faith spaces, as well as feeling sort of an innate sense of support for self coming mm -hmm. out of those same spaces. Um, one of the things that I uh, have thought about often is, uh, for example, within my own family, uh, my parents were absolutely fantastic at offering affirmation for who I was. You know, whatever you want to do, however you end up being in the world, right, we're there for you, which was a hugely important baseline to have. It does cause this kind of weird tension, though, for somebody caught in trying to figure out who they are about mm -hmm. my parents are so supportive, yet I feel so disconnected. I feel so separated from who I am. So I'm not at a place where I can offer the same affirmation of self that I hear coming from the, those around me, whether that was my parents or the potential of the church. I think that the 80s and 90s, uh, when I was coming up through my teens and early 20s, when this self was I don't know if it was even becoming clearer, but the sense of some type of 
difference uh, that I couldn't put into words um, was also a point in the life of this country, the life, mm. uh, even a good liberal denomination like the UCC that was fraught with challenge over gender, uh, over affectional orientation. This was the height of uh, the first real height of the AIDS crisis after all. And so not only were gay men being demonized, but then trans folks, I think, at least in my teenage mind, I'll let historians kind of chart the specifics of this more, but at least in what in my teenage mind, whatever I was, was an ever, even further monstrified version of the people they were already making out to be monsters, right? Uh, and that made it really challenging. Right. Uh, the um, while it wasn't on gender issues, I remember at one of those uh, one of those synods, uh, I, I was in both of them. You know, it's kind of luck of the draw in some ways, and what committees you you end up on. And both of them, I ended up in really hot button issue committees, um, uh, euthanasia, end of life. Uh, autonomy, uh, reproductive care, and abortion, and uh, and uh, I I was really captivated by the work of trying to hear all the different voices that were around those committee tables and trying to hear the nuance and resolution and, and figure out how to move forward, um, but down on the synod floor uh, after, I wouldn't say a heated meeting, but a tough meeting where we were really trying to navigate uh, the same type of challenges we do now around reproductive uh, healthcare, around uh, the freedom to make choices for oneself about what's best for one's own health and family life. Um, I was approached uh, by a person who introduced themselves as a minister, uh, said they were from down somewhere, I think around the Virginia shore and, um, uh, said, Oh, you know, I saw you in the committee there the other day. And I was, I wasn't feeling proud of the work, but I was feeling energized by it and feeling like we had tuffled, tackled tough issues well. And so, you know, I was naive, probably at 1920, uh, about what he might say. And of course, what he went on to say was not hopeful or helpful at all, but went on to say, uh, I saw what you did there, what you were working on in the committees earlier today. And I think you should get down on your knees right here in front of everyone and confess before Almighty God the sins that you have committed in that committee by, you know, offering conversation and, and, uh, a path forward on these awful resolutions just out of nowhere. You know, I came up with the classic stereotypical UCC white, you know, left of center university type of congregation. So I just wasn't prepared for that. And so the self that was still hidden took away from that moment that there were folks like that, even in our church, even in our denomination, 
So as much as I knew that there was sucker and support for folks, uh, I also knew that challenge could come from unexpected directions. And at a moment in kind of our, in our cultural history and our language history, I didn't have a way to frame this self, this trans self, in a positive way, mm. to be able to say, to start not with a sentence that says, I am not such and such, but I am this, but to be able to just simply claim boldly, uh, I am trans, I am Tara Johnson, this is who I am. Uh, and I didn't see a way to do that. So being able to stand up to that type of uh, religious pushback was kind of scary uh, for me. And I think uh, kept me from feeling entirely safe, even in what should have been fairly safe church settings, because I felt like I just didn't know. Uh, that's not to say that, you know, this denomination and a lot of the churches that I've been haven't been lovely, supportive and affirming places in a, in a lot of ways. But after that experience, there was always this little worry in the back of my mind of just what might happen. And that's that's real. And and I think one of the things that I always remind people, Open and Affirming Coalition exists um, because there is a need in our denomination. Like the bulk of UCC churches are not open and affirming. Uh, 60%, over 60% are not, where I think we're like 36% of UCC churches are open and affirming. And the coalition, that's what we do is walk churches through the journey. Um, some it takes a year, some it takes several years. Uh, the congregation that I pastor, they the idea was introduced when the certifications first started and it took 20 years before our congregation was at a place where they were um, able to do that. And even as relates to old LGBTQ+, even within those contexts, there are people who are understanding of the lesbian experience, understanding of a gay experience, maybe questioning bisexuality, but you know, understanding that. But uh, there are still a lot of churches, even those that are ONA, that struggle with trans, uh, that struggle with trans experience. And so kudos to you and to anyone else who is able to identify who they are within themselves and to declare boldly, I'm going to do this even though it's hard, even though, even though you you walk that those difficult journeys, and I think, thank you for sharing your story, and thank you for sharing your honesty about. It's awesome having these supportive parents, but I didn't know how to do that for myself yet. Like that's right. just such a real and honest thing. So thank you for that. Yeah, I feel like all of us have versions of these experiences, right? Where we're struggling to uh, understand who we are, struggling, come to terms is maybe the wrong word, but mm -hmm. to to live in a 
way that the various selves and voices that we have uh, within us uh, cohere in a way that we can walk along with them <laughs> uh, uh, feeling fairly healthy on a on a day to day uh, day to day basis. I don't want to take away from how this is present and true for all types of folks, not just trans folks, right? Uh, but to your point about where uh, churches, where faith communities, I think of a lot of different stripes, uh, may have real challenge is on this whole gender identity thing, right? You know, um, and I, I would say to that, okay, uh, but there is so much of the other's experience that we will never have access to ourselves. As a matter of fact, the entirety of the other person's experience, we will never have a true interior understanding of right. what that is for ourselves, right? You and I, we could be the same in so many different ways. And people looking at the screen will wonder how twins like us uh, don't share the exact same same life path, right? But even if we were that twin, right, that we see the world in very different ways, we understand and feel the world in very different ways, we understand and feel ourselves in very different ways. And the only way that anyone else has access or a view of our experience is by my report of myself. Whether that is happiness, whether that is what my faith does and activates for me, and it also has to do with how I understand this gendered self. None of those things are accessible to anybody else outside of our report. So if we're going to believe somebody on their happiness, if we're going to believe somebody when they say they're hurting, if we're going to believe somebody when they say that this is what my faith energizes me for and prepares me for and helps me feel uh, ready to take on. If we believe folks on all of these other things, because that's all we can do, why would we stop short in this one place? Um, it just seems like a, uh, obviously within a trans experience, it feels like that's just another aspect of self, right? right? Uh, that we have to, that I tell you, I tell you I'm trans. That's just part of my description of who I am. And then we move on, we move on from there. I could say I am a trans person with a pain scale of three right now. You know, I got a little bit of a headache. Why would we accept the number and believe that I have a headache when there's no way for you to be able to tell whether my heads are hurting, but not accept the former piece about me saying, that I'm trans. That just there, there's a slippage there in the way that we accept people's reports of themselves. That I really think that we need to do some careful and thoughtful work with, both individually and then within all types of different communities, whether it's faith communities or our neighborhoods or wherever else. Absolutely. So to your point, let's 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 transition into what in the world is happening in 
in the world right now. But uh, specifically, we think um, I had a church member as we were preparing for 2024, that last Sunday of 2023, she said, I am petrified about what's coming in 2024 because of the current social, political, economic state of our country. And it's an election year, not just when I say, and of course, every year is an election year for something, mm-hmm. but this is a presidential election year in the midst of an attack on diversity, equity, and inclusion, mm-hmm. an attack on critical race theory, an attack on the LGBTQ, especially trans experience in our country. Uh, we said when we started, almost 500 anti-trans, anti-LGBT bills have already been presented and we're just in the middle of February. And so we know that more are coming. And the very first one to pass a state legislature in uh, the U.S. this year was in Ohio, which is where the headquarters of the Open and Affirming Coalition uh, lies, where the headquarters of the United Church of Christ is in, in, in Cleveland. And so you being a person of trans experience in public life in Tennessee, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, the home of the very first, you know, the anti-drag bill. Uh, I always tell people Tennessee killed Martin Luther King. Like that was, Tennessee has a long history of being a difficult place uh, as it relates to the civil rights of marginalized individuals. So how does it feel in this current state, living in that state and doing the work that you do what is that experience like? It's it's really a oh, what are those called? The 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 masks that they had the Janus mask, the two faced mm-hmm. mask, right with the happy and the and the sad. Yeah. That mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's what it feels like, right? Uh, and on 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 the sad side. Uh, to, and to your point, Tennessee is absolutely and unfortunately uh, a leader in some of the most discriminatory legislation uh, that we see across the country. Um, it 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 is in a neck and neck race with Florida uh, for being being as bad. And as a matter of fact, I would say, well, I could say a lot about how there's a, a coalition like Alec the American uh, Legislation Exchange Council, right, which helps distribute this kind of awful legislation from state to state. But uh, states like Florida, states like Tennessee have always been early adopters on that legislation. Um, The very first committee hearing uh, that I attended just to kind of go down and see what that was like in person at the Tennessee legislature was on DEI issues and restricting those. And uh, ironically and sadly enough, in the same committee hearing, also worked to establish an institute of uh, civic engagement at the same time that they were restricting what terms could be used, what subjects could be taught, uh, taught, 
so you're exactly right, right. This is a state that has had a difficult history. It continues to ramp up its rhetoric, uh, inviting uh, even uh, inviting by dog whistle, uh, if not outright words, uh, some of the most problematic uh, ideas and uh, groups into our state. Uh, you know, we had a city council race here recently where the folks around this kind of low key. Uh, city council race um, came from a center on Southern Poverty Law Center's watch list wow. as an uh, for a city. They they were the entourage around this city council candidate. Just this last weekend in downtown Nashville, uh, we had a group of I don't know twenty or thirty folks in red and black waving. Uh, flags with swastikas on them, marching right down lower Broadway. Wow. So this is a state that continues to have deep trouble. There is a bathroom bill that is uh, coming up in committee tomorrow that is by far one of the most far-reaching and uh, limiting to access in public life uh, for trans folks that we've seen anywhere in the country. The flag bill, uh, which would ban any type of flag, any display of flag, even on a pendant, even on a tattoo uh, uh, of symbols of welcome and safety, like a pride flag, a little sticker on the back of the uh, computer monitor, that comes up in hearing again this Wednesday. Uh, a bill, by the way, that is written in such a way that would ban that pride flag, but where legal in a hearing for it would not say with certainty that it would ban the very type of flag that ended up being waved on our city streets this last weekend. Wow. So yes, this is an exceptionally challenging moment. Now, the positive side of that Janus mask, the happy side, is that as difficult as it is to step forward and how tiring it can be to step forward again and again, in the process of doing that, one is called to claim one's full self in that process. So one starts to feel the power of all of who this authentic self can be in the world and speak out of. And at the same time, find other people also living into the fullness of their authentic selves and the fullness of their in energy. And they're the folks that are on either side of you. Maybe right now it's holding the line. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not steps forward. We're just trying not to get worse. I think we have to be honest that this is where we are in a lot of places in this country, and especially Tennessee right now. We're linking arms together in uh, support uh, and in solidarity with one another uh, to affirm each other, to be the person that the other person can lean on when they're tired or overwhelmed 
and they can be the person that we put our head on their shoulder when we're getting overwhelmed, right? And being able to see all those folks stepping forward like that yes, God. is hugely joy giving, right? And those are the same folks that, granted, it's a little bit of a trauma bonding experience, right? So uh, uh, when I say that those are the folks that you're creating real trust relationships with, I, I mean that. And I mean that because you have been through the S together, right? right? In some very real ways. And those are the folks that you know when there is a moment to start taking a step forward and start building something that is not as awful, that is better than where we are now, then those are the folks that you'll immediately be able, that I'll be able to immediately start working with because we've built those trust relationships. We've been through the tough stuff together and we're ready to go to work. We're ready to make things better for not just trans folks, but our school children who are being threatened with a type of disenfranchisement, disenfranchisement of their own voices, of their own paths forward in life through this ridiculous voucher system that they want to pull additional money and break away from federal dollars, leaving disabled children, leaving uh, children that have historical uh, uh, segregation histories behind their poorer schools, right? Their, and their per, poorer performance, not their poorer performance, but the school's poorer performance because they've been historically underfunded. Exactly. The, uh, I'll just say one last thing on, on that point, right? The state legislature here is threatening to take away, uh, is just a couple steps away from disbanding the whole board for Tennessee State University. Uh, an HBCU. I say historical right? college, right? Yeah, exactly. At the same time that they are basically have been found to be responsible for underfunding that same institution by $1.4 billion or something um, over the last X number of years. The, the, the ways that uh, they are pushing back at us are multiple. Uh, so all we can do is look to each other and find ways to support each other uh, in, in the face of all that. Absolutely. And that's one of the main reasons why I wanted to talk with you because I do see Tennessee, Florida, Ohio, Texas, like there are these states that that seem it seems like Tennessee and Florida are neck and neck. And then what we see happening there, there are the states that then jump on the bandwagon and model the legislation, the 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 hatred, the homophobia, the racism and sexism and, you know, infringed on the reproductive rights based on what they see happening in Florida, in Tennessee, in Texas, in, you know, in, in all these places. Sure. What do you think then, um, Martin Luther King, 
one of my favorite Martin Luther King quotes was injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, right? So if I am a UCC member of one of those ONA churches, like you said, left of center in Northeast, fill in the blank, and that's not happening around here, but the fact that it's happening in Tennessee, the fact that it's happening anywhere is traumatic for all of us people right. who are queer, who love people who are trans, who like just seeing all of that, it, it, it riles me up because I also know what that has to be like for the young trans person, the young LGBT person who's watching the news, who's listening in the car. And they're like, what what's happening? I mean, people are literally, we are literally helping people move from states like Tennessee to other states so they can have health care, so that their children can have health care. So, like, what 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 do we do? What do what what should churches do? What should individuals do? What should how should we be resisting? And what should we be doing? to change these laws, to prevent these laws from happening where we are and where you are? That's, that's a really important question. Uh, I'm going to break it into two parts, uh, a little bit of more of a concrete element and then kind of a broader view uh, element, a sort of down on the dance floor element, right in the thick of it element, and then an up on the balcony element. Um, and the first is, uh, I'm, I'm so glad that you brought up this uh, point of helping folks get health care, helping families get uh, resettled uh, in other places, uh, getting them support, uh, because this is actually, it is that very action uh, that I, uh, I'm sure, and others too, uh, but I can only speak to my experience. I was in a bed recovering some from some much needed gender affirming surgery during Synod this year, uh, but I was having conversations with folks who were there and uh, really uh, pressing strenuously uh, for language to be added in the resolution supporting trans folks uh, that were on the floor this year, that we add specific language to that resolution that called on churches, that called on conferences to reactivate those refugee support networks that many of those churches, as you describe them, know well from uh, Central America, from or even earlier, from uh, helping uh, displaced folks from Southeast Asia in the early 70s, you know, from Central America in the 80s and 90s. Well, now we're seeing medical refugees, discrimination refugees within our own country. Exactly. And we know how to do this work in our denomination. We know how to do this in our churches because we've had to do it so many times before. So if your church doesn't have uh, a, a, a process in place uh, to maybe uh, have some host housing, available to have some gas gift cards if you are a stop kind of along the overground railroad 
right now for folks trying to flee states like Tennessee, like Texas, like Florida, to get to places that are more affirming. If you don't have things like that in place in your congregation, start talking about it. Uh, start talking about how you can put those material resources in place because this is actually happening. The number of folks that I know who lived in this state at the beginning of 2023 and who did not live here by the end of that same year is staggering, right? Uh, the amount of my community that helped offer support to me and hopefully I to them has reduced dramatically in size because the situation has become so dire in places like here. Or it, it, folks feel existentially mm. unmoored, un unsafe. So a very real and concrete way that churches can help is just to follow that part of the resolution. Get get those refugee, uh, that that old history within us Get that working again, uh, because if you are on a path to someplace safer, if you're in Kentucky or if you're in Ohio and you're uh, if you're in Illinois on the way up to a place like Chicago, where there is like umpty billion LGBTQIA health organizations that can help folks out, uh, plan some support networks and, and get the word out. Uh, with the organizations in your area and through the ONA coalition about what what you have available and what you're willing to offer. Um, so that's the the first part. Uh, and the the second part we're gonna have to come back to because it just completely slipped <laughs> off. So you know we, we definitely talked about like the the grassroots and then you said like the overarching um, ideas, but what do you think, how do you, how do you encourage people who maybe have trans experience or maybe LGBTQ in this current season that it feels like day after day, attack after attack? I mean, like a few years ago, Many of us thought after marriage equality passed, after you know so many barriers, just it, it it just felt like to be LGBTQ in this country, it felt like we were on a trajectory of getting more rights and getting more acceptance and more affirmation and. You know, Lady Gaga had us putting our paws up, and I'm born this way, right? So what do you say for this new generation, Gen Z, who may have been too young to, to experience that, and they've been filling year after year of more bills and more uh, less rights and more attacks? How do you encourage the next generation um, in this? I don't, this yeah, I don't. You know, I, I, I want to name something that's really true. Uh, the very first person, the very first trans person that I saw testify in front of one of these tough subcommittees in the Tennessee General Assembly 
was a trans masculine uh, young man of about 20 or 21, right? And that the person who testified right after him was another trans masculine person of about 23 or 24. So for me, I see so much modeling of exactly how the rest of us should be moving forward uh, in our lives and have the courage to move forward in our own lives in uh, the lives of the young folks around me. It, it's almost, it's this weird moment, right? Where they almost feel like mentors to my own experience because they are living it so authentically and, and fully, at least it seems, you know, from, from the outside, not, not to name their experience. But I feel like it's important to name that there's some really important modeling of how, of a positive direction that, that we're heading. At the same time, those same folks, I think, are already weary mm -hmm. in a way that us older folks are. I mean, I'm just 25 myself, right? <laughs> but <laughs> no, I turned 54 in May. But I mean, for those of us who are a little bit older and who have gone through those, those waves of awful to a little bit better, to something that was pretty rough again, and then to the times like you're describing of having these moments where there seemed like there was this really uh, growing, uh, growing acceptance and really even moving past acceptance into type of a, a sort of vocal affirmation to find ourselves back at that, that point. It's understandable in some ways that folks who have been through all that are pretty weary because they've done it a few times before. But to your point, I think these folks who are doing this living of self so well are wise beyond their years and able to do that so well because they have had to be in uh, the forging furnace mm. from the moment they were in the world almost. And so they've lived a lot of those lifetime, lifetimes that you know the older of us have, they've lived it all mm. or a whole bunch of it just over their 20 years or 25 years or heck, sometimes even 16 or 17 or 18 years, right? Um, so that's that's a real challenge, and I, I I would I would want to affirm the realness of um, of all of that experience for older and younger folks, and to be able to both uh, to offer them strength to be explicit in saying you offer model to me, right? so that they they know that it's not just a shout in the wind, right? right. Um, that it really is having a positive impact on, on somebody. Um, and then also, and this reminds me of the more, the big picture thing that I wanted to talk about earlier, is that we also need to be really willing to name and appreciate people's grief, people's mm -hmm. hurt. Um, 
I haven't done said a lot of chaplainy type things in this conversation, but if I'm allowed one, am I allowed one, Reverend Absolutely. Derek? Am, am I allowed to go to the preaching moment once in this conversation? Absolutely. I would say that whether it's born out of the work that I do in hospice in sitting with folks that are hurting or in spaces like the Tennessee state legislature where people try and try and try again, bringing the wholeness of themselves and still are often frustrated and hurt by what happens in those spaces, that we need to be willing to sit with that hurt. The Job moment, I think, is so informative. There's just a brief, we have just a couple of sentences in Job that shows all of us how to sit with folks that are hurting before the companions went on their chapter long uh, explanations of why Job must be in the situation that he is and all the ways that was wrong and all the ways that that left Job crying out to God, where is the one who would defend me before all that? Job's companions saw him weeping in the dirt and sat down in the dirt and wept with him. Mm. And again, if we're going to accept and support and affirm the full authenticity of who each of us is, then we can't shy away from sitting in the dirt with folks and supporting them and crying with them, wailing with them in the times of change and loss and difficulty. Those are hard moments for outsiders to sit in and sit in simply to do that. Right. Not to give explanation, not to give, oh, you'll this will get better, but simply to sit with folks and say, you know what? You're right. This is rough. This sucks. And to leave it there, I feel like there is a realm of support in times that are often so hurtful that we're ignoring because of our own discomfort in helping support folks who are hurting, that we're leaving unattended to, that we're leaving on on the table that we could gain so much by in the sense of offering a support that the world doesn't offer to us or that we offer each other uh, far too frequently. You know, we do that uh, way, way too frequently in, in the sense of, of just sort of trying to bypass the whole hurt thing um, instead of sitting in the dirt, grieving with folks and saying, I don't know what the next day will hold or why we're at the point that we are now, but I'm here with you. And that's what I can offer. I think that that's a beautiful message, especially as we enter, we recently entered the Lenten season just remembering the, the concept of a liberation theology is that we stand, Jesus is on the side of the oppressed. 
that we stand by the oppressed and marginalized population. <laughs> exactly, James Cone. <laughs> exactly, and that of the oppressed. Um, we we have a tradition in my church whenever people are struggling with something, and 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 I'm aware of it. There's a simple song that we learned several years ago, and it simply says, I'll be your standing stone, I'll stand by you. And it's the whole idea that there are times in life where God calls us to just show up for people, not to offer explanation, not to offer words. And as a chaplain, as a minister, there are times where I just show up and say, I'm here just to stand with you, stand for you, stand by you. And so we'll call people up or we'll show up and we'll just say, I'll be your standing stone, I'll stand by you, that I'm just here. We don't have to talk about anything, don't have to do anything. If you wanna talk, talk. If not, I'm just here. It's like, you know, in the black community, um, when someone dies, we just all go to their house and sit and have food and, you know, we're, we're just here. And I think that that's part of the work. I part of the work, and and all of us are called to do something. And so maybe the church has resources to be a part of the network of helping people to resettle. Maybe the church has resources to help to tangibly fund things. Maybe you have the resource to share and amplify voices on social media that are speaking their experiences, or maybe you just show up when there's a call to mm. cut to the state house and you show up and you hold a sign and you make a call. But I do believe that all of us must do something. And I don't think we, we well, I think all of us must do something and the, and what my something looks like may be completely different than yours. But Martin Luther King said, everybody can be great because everyone can serve. And that's true. So, so what is our service? We're going to be talking about this a lot this year with different voices in different generations in different states in different areas of activism because in every great movement in this country, there have been church people, clergy, laity, people of all generations who showed up to resist injustice. It's just, it's, it's, it's what we do. It, there would be no civil rights movement without the church. There'd be no voters rights movement without the church. There would be no LGBT rights movement without people, Christians, gay, straight, and otherwise, who showed up and resisted the hate. And so we're really calling our churches to activate and to push back against some of these things that are being done. And it's not just the legislation itself, but it's the harm that amplifying these negative stereotypes and amplifying all the all some of these things even if the legislation isn't passed, when you're watching the news and you hear some of the crazy, some of the stuff that is said, 
people hear that, children hear that, adult like people that, and that's all it all does harm. And um, and I do think it's important that people hear the other side. Whenever we go to Pride, there are always churches holding up their hateful signs. But I'm grateful that there are denominations and churches where clergy come in their collars holding up the God loves you and take pictures with people. Like, so showing up, I know sometimes it feels like, oh, well, my voice or me doing this won't make a difference. It always makes a difference. You may not see the tree grow from the seed that you plant, but some of them do grow. And, and so thank you for your work. And I hope that you do not grow weary in well-doing. And I hope that you also take care of yourself because doing this type of work is taxing. And so I really do hope that you that you take that you take care of Darren and make sure that your mental, physical, emotional needs are met. Well, good conversations like this help tremendously. I, I will I will say if I can tack on. I know we're wrapping up, and I want to tack on something. Tack on something important. One of the things that you bring up is that for all of those kind of uh resourced ways that we can help one of the things that you said that i think really deserves underscoring is how do we show up how do we use ourselves if we don't have anything else to give if five dollars if two dollars extra is really something that we need to be able to get to work get that one extra gallon of gas uh you know whatever it happens to be understood completely right the, our uh, the the uh, the movement for freedom and for authenticity is one for all of us regardless of the means that we have right? absolutely and so to think it doesn't take anything but a decision to say i'm going to stand with somebody or i'm going to sit in the dirt with somebody to make yourself available for that, you can do that just by being observant in the coffee shop some days, you know, and just see maybe that person that you've talked with a little bit before and is having a tougher day and you show up for them. That's part of this work too, right? The ways that we show up for uh, our neighbors, the folks that we don't know that don't take resource, they just take being present. Uh, we shouldn't undervalue, undervalue those. Uh, and I think about uh, I think about something that my dad did in a church in Durham, North Carolina, to try to break down uh, the most segregated hour in America. There are three UCC churches in Durham at that time, uh, two of which were historically black congregation, and then my dad's congregation. And he actually created an exchange program right, where folks would go for six months a year and be a full part of the life of those other congregations. Mm. Uh, and those don't take that. Doing something like that doesn't take resource. It takes intentionality. Exactly. It takes the desire to break down the patterns and habits that separate us from each other. 
whether that's across race lines, whether that's along socioeconomic lines, rather whether that's on uh, cis, trans, LGBTQ, not queer, queer lines, whatever lines those are, what it takes to help create change across those. Maybe sometimes resources are important, but the intentionality to go into those liminal spaces and those in-between spaces, to walk across those liminal spaces in and offer oneself for the possibility of change and difference, that just takes a decision here to say, you know what, I, I don't have anything else but this me to try to do something in the world. What can I do with this me? Ah, that's perfect. That is perfect. Thank you so much, Darren, for taking time out of your busy schedule. I know you've worked all day and you have done this for us. And thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm super excited uh, to be able to continue to work with you. And we will be in prayer and what I call active prayer for uh, the work that you are doing and the work that will come out of this conversation that other people will in embark upon. And we know that God is on our side and we know that God has given us a voice and the tools needed to protect God's children of all different experiences. So mm. thank you for your passion for this work and thank you for your willingness to serve and to put yourself out there because it is not easy. It is sometimes scary but when God asked who will go, you said, send me. And I'm so grateful for that. And I'm grateful to know you. So thank you, thank you, thank you. You hit me in a soft spot, Reverend. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And it's a real gift and uh gift of opportunity and a gift of being with good people to be in conversation with you this evening and to talk about the work of this denomination and of the ONA coalition. Well, bless you, bless you. That's Chaplain Darren Johnson, uh, who is uh, with Tennessee Equality Project, who's been doing a lot of really good work in Tennessee. And so we're definitely going to check back in with her soon to follow out to follow up with what's happening. Thank you all so much for tuning in to uh, the Intersection and ONA podcast. Take care and God bless. Thank you, Darren. <laughs>